The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we are grateful for you, Lord who reigns over all of life, God who is full of compassion and mercy, who knows all of the details of these particular situations. One, we, ju- we just heard the story of, of Riley's past couple of years. Others of us know Elizabeth's story and the Loop family. And, and you know far more about it than any of us do, and you know what you're doing in it and where you're taking these stories. And we thank you for that, and we put our lives and their lives in your hands and rest in that. You are good. You are wise. You are strong. And so we ask you to care for your people. We want to be used, Lord, but we ask ultimately you, you care for them. You know how, you, you know when and in what ways. We pray for the Loop family, you know, for Sean and their situation is certainly aggravated by this appendix thing. Lord, have mercy on them. Meet their needs. Use your body to meet their needs their health needs, but Lord, over all of this, we we have to acknowledge and we pray that you would remind us of that the most important thing going on here is nothing to do with our physical bodies. The most important thing going on in every moment of every life has to do with our souls. Do these challenges that, that we face... Do they drive us to you and cause us to hope in you, or do they separate us from you? That's the question. And I pray, Lord, in the Loop family and in our larger church family, would you use these trials and tribulations and afflictions that we face to drive us to you and cause us to hope in you and to see you as a glorious and beautiful Savior. So we pray, save, we pray, deliver them from their situation that they're in. Deliver each of us from the trials that we face. But particularly, Lord, deliver our souls up to you in joy. Lord, we come again to your word here this morning. In need of truth from you to shape our hearts and lives. And so we pray, take this ancient word and speak through it. Thousands of years old, Lord, and it's alive because it's your word. Unchanging and never failing, speak in it, we pray. Commission your spirit, Father, to come and run through this place and change our hearts. Open them up, enliven them towards you. Show us the beauty of your Son. Show us the greatness of your character. And particularly this morning, Lord, from this text, I pray that you would show us your tremendous affection for us and your burning desire for us to be holy. Both of those things. They're, they're, both, they're both there in your character as you look at us. Show us your desire for us, your people, to be pure and holy and set apart to you. And particularly, Lord, Fuel that, drive that 
growing holiness in us with an increased awareness and, and a clear vision of your affection for us, your passion for us, your love for us, how you treasure us, your people. Make that clear to us from this text by the power of your Spirit, I pray. That Christ would be honored amongst this holy people and that we would be delighted in Him, the lover of our souls. I pray this in His name and for the the good of your church. Amen. Last week, our progress to the book of Deuteronomy brought us to chapter 13. And in so doing, it turned our attention to God's expectation that His community be holy. God expects that of His people. And we looked at chapter 13 and saw that there, the first commandment was center stage, lifted up in front of us, and the issue being dealt with there was some sobering instruction about what do we individually and what do we as a corporate body do in response to situations where someone or someones amongst the body act to tempt or attempt to lure us away from giving our whole affection to the Lord. When something comes along that that tempts us away from Him into breaking the first commandment, how are we to respond to that? And it it was some some sobering instruction because of the nature of the threat. You, You think about what is involved in a temptation to break the first commandment. It is a temptation to death. It is a temptation towards spiritual death, even physical death, but especially the death of your soul. It is a serious temptation. And so in the Old Covenant context, with the the covenant community being defined geographically and politically, the law of the land was the death penalty. Execution. This one who is, is hardened in his or her position to attempt to lure people to break away from God and to break the covenant... They are to be executed. That was appropriate then, given the nature of the offense and given the nature of the covenant community. But that has changed, remember. The the covenant community changed when Christ came. God didn't change. God's desire to be honored didn't change. But the nature of the covenant community changed. Now that Christ has come, we are not a community that is defined by ethnicity and geography and, and politics. We are in every tongue, tribe, people, and nation across the globe. And God has handed civil law to civil authorities. Civil authorities make the laws of the land and determine the punishment for breaking those laws. We, the covenant community and the church, function differently. We still have to uphold the moral law, the law that requires us to hold fast to God. But how we do that is different now that the covenant community has changed. And we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 how it is that we are to do that. Paul there picks up on statements from our passage and from the rest of the book of Deuteronomy and says how you are to handle these sorts of situations is the process of church discipline that may end in excommunication. The very end of the process of church discipline. He quotes our passage, uses the language of our passage twice to connect the two. So we looked at that last week. The main point of it being that we as a church community, not just individuals, We as a church community are are commanded by God to act so as to do all that we can to maintain a holy standard within the church. To do all that we can to maintain a holy covenant community. And, And that concept of holiness 
It's what bridges into our chapter for today, chapter 14. It's going to pick up on that idea and expand on a little bit. This, this idea of a holy community set apart to God. So my hope, as I prayed, my, my, my hope for this morning is that he would use this to raise in each of us individually and, and in our, our corporate atmosphere a desire, and a really, not just a desire, but a concern that we be a holy people. He raised that concern in us as a people. And that he drive that by showing us what he thinks about us. It's the two things that uh, I'm praying that God would use this chapter to work in your heart this morning. So let me read the passage. And I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand some of the details. There are a lot of details to understand here before I make some overarching observations. Let me read Deuteronomy chapter 14. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Get those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof. They are unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, it is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales you may eat, and whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones you shall not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, Every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the night hawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopy and the bat, and all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns, that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money, and bind up the money in your hand, and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses, and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. 
And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Deuteronomy 14. The chapter contains two distinct sections that cover topics that people commonly associate with the law of Moses. Laws covering clean and unclean food, and laws covering tithing of all the the produce of the land. And these topics are, in fact, common throughout the law. If you read throughout the other books of the law, you see them coming up repeatedly. And if you read in the other places, you'll, you'll notice one thing about Deuteronomy's treatment of these subjects. Deuteronomy is much more brief. A lot less detailed than all the other places. There are various ways that the other places clarify certain things and make other things clear and elaborate. And, and Deuteronomy kind of brushes over that. Partially because Deuteronomy comes after the other places and Moses knows they already have all that record. They can check the details if they want to. But also because here in Deuteronomy he has another point. Under the inspiration of God, Moses is emphasizing something in particular, and that's going to become our focus here in a moment. Not so much the details, what he's trying to do with them is going to become our focus. But we do need to comment on some of the details, because there are quite a few here. You notice that in verses 3 to 21, the creatures of the creation are divided in a couple of ways. Divided twice, actually. First... They are divided along the the basic spheres of the creation. So it puts them in the land, sky, and sea. And to be honest, if you have a footnote, you might notice there that we're not really certain on which, how to identify all these particular animals. But we are clear of, of what categories they fall in. Divides them land, sky, and sea. And, and then it splits them another way. Clean and unclean. Divided into this Clean and unclean category, which is, of course, ceremonially clean and unclean. I'm not talking about physically dirty. It's a ceremonial thing. And in saying that, it's touching on this large blanket metaphor that rests over almost every area of Jewish life. Almost every area of the life of ancient Israel is covered by this great big clean-unclean metaphor. To be clean... Is, is to be in this category that is permitted. This can be touched. This can be eaten. There's, there's no problem here. This does not contaminate. This still leaves you able to commune with other people, to be a part of the community, to participate with God, to interact with Him, to go into His presence. Clean. And on the other hand, unclean is that which in some way contaminates. Cuts off fellowship. Sets aside makes one unable to go into God's presence outside of the community in some way or another. So you've got this, it kind of rests over all of life, this this great big metaphor, and here in this chapter we're talking about clean and unclean animals. What's it based on? What's it based on? Well, that is much debated. One answer that gets repeated a lot is that the the clean and unclean animals are about hygiene. Maybe health, you might say. 
God, so the theory goes, God graciously forbid his people from eating animals that were in some way disease prone. And in some little cases, that does make some sense. But the problem is that the Bible never even hints at that idea, and that doesn't go to address the whole metaphor of clean and unclean. Other people will say that because of what verse 3 says, you shall not eat any abomination. How that word is used throughout Deuteronomy, especially in, in connection with worship of idols. Now what's going on here is that these forbidden animals were connected in some way to, to the foreigners' worship patterns, the idolatry. And maybe again a little bit of sense there. But I think that the best reason, the best way of explaining the clean and unclean divide is one that falls along the line of deviation, disorder, and fall. Deviation, disorder, and fall. Such that clean is distinct from, is set aside from things that remind one of deviation, disorder, and fall. And unclean is stuff that's closer to deviation, disorder, and fall. For instance, clean animals, they are distanced from the ground which was cursed in the fall. Even in their hooves, their hooves are split in half, so they're, they have less contact with the ground physically. They chew the cud, which means they process twice that stuff that comes from the ground. They're, they're set away from it a little bit, the cursed ground. Clean animals are those that are not already dead, mind of the curse. Those that don't eat dead animals, no vultures. Those that don't kill and eat animals, birds of prey. I think this is the best way to think about the clean and unclean divide. It makes the most sense of the whole metaphor as well, because it looks at clean and unclean outside of the food realm as connected in some way to fall, disorder, and deviation. Holy people are to be set aside from fall, disorder, deviation, that's what makes them clean. And the closer they come to fall and disorder and deviation, they're contaminated. I think that makes the most sense, and that might even go towards explaining what that, that puzzling statement in verse 21, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. People don't really know what that means, but it fits in this, in this explanation. It's a disorder. The thing that's supposed to give life to this young animal is used to cook it. That's twisted. It's disorder. I think that is the best explanation for why clean and unclean, why that divide exists. But don't get too hung up on that because, frankly, Moses is not explaining. Here's why things are clean. Here's why things are unclean. He's just saying there is a system and it must be followed. You must avoid, you must not take in any of this unclean abomination. You must only take in these things that are clean. Why? Because it's a theological reason, ultimately, in Moses' eyes. We get this right out of verses 1 and 2. Several statements about the identity of the people. First sentence says, You are the sons of the Lord your God. While that may feel a little odd to the half of us who are women... I want to say that to you too, the women. You are the sons of the Lord your God. 
It should be okay to talk like that. I'm the bride of Christ. I mean, it, it's okay. I'm a part of the bride of Christ. We can use this sort of language and cross these gender lines. Sometimes the Bible uses language that is male because it's just being generic. But sometimes there's importance in the word. So I want to say your sons because of what sons were in the ancient world. To, for God to call you, even you women, to, for God to call you his sons is to say, you are my heirs. You are the ones that stand at my right hand and bear my name and carry my lineage forward. Daughters don't do that. Sons do. Even today, but especially in the ancient world. To have sons. To give them who you are. To impart your character to them. And then expect them to go out and stand for you in the world. Is an extremely, it's an integral part of an ancient family. And when God says, you are my sons. That's what he's saying. You're my heirs. You're my name bearers. You're marked by me. Owned by me. Sons of the Lord your God. You are his you carry his name because he chose you, middle verse 2, to be a people for his treasured possession. He chose, he selected, he brought you out and made you his people. That's what the word holy means, to be, to be taken out and set aside, set apart from something. He chose you and pulled you over here. Out of all the people on the earth, he chose you and pulled you over here and made you holy and said, you are my sons, my treasured possession. And it's the same thing repeated in verse 21. At the end of all the stuff about you can't eat this, you can't eat that, it's the, it's the bookend at the other end. Why can't you eat this thing? For you are holy to the Lord. I have taken you out and set you aside to be mine. That's why you can't do this. That's why you can't eat these unclean things. Back in verse 1, why can't you cut yourself or make marks for the dead? Because that's what the other peoples do. The other religions do. You can't do that. You're set aside to me. You're mine. That's the underlying theme also that moves into 22 and following with the tithing. The idea of being set apart, drawn apart to God. What's the purpose of the tithe here in this book? If you read in other places in, in the law, the tithe is used to support the Levites and take care of the temple and whatnot. Here, what does the tithe do? They bring the tithe and it provides the meal, the great feast. It's the party. With who? With God. You bring the tithe and then we sit down together. You and me, says God. Who? My family. We sit down at this table. And we rejoice together, verse 26, worshiping and rejoicing and eating together. And then I use that to meet the needs of all my other people, the Levites who have no inheritance, the widow, orphan, sojourner, verses 28 and 29. You bring this in and then we as a family turn right around and set it on the table and feast. And all of us eat. And in so doing, end of verse 23, You learn to fear the Lord. You learn to fasten yourself to me. Become attached to me in this tithing process. So what connects these two sections, though they seem a little bit unrelated, what connects the two of them is this idea of God 
calling a people out to himself and making them distinct. Holy people set aside, coming into his presence and feasting before him. That's what we're going to be focusing on, not, not all the details about what you're supposed to eat and what you're not. The idea of God setting aside a people to himself. So we're going to look at. Let me try to give a summary statement for the, for the whole chapter. Let me give it in a sentence here, and then I'll break it apart into two, into two subparts. God has set us apart as a people for himself. And he intends that we live like it. God has set us apart as a people for himself. And he intends that we live like it. I'm just going to break that in half and make two observations from the text about it. Begin with what God has done to create an identity for us. God has made us to be his holy treasured people. He's made us to be his holy treasured people. Obviously, I draw that right out of the language of verses 1 and 2 and verse 21. He says, you are the sons of the Lord, a people holy to the Lord your God. Set apart to him. How did that happen? We didn't volunteer. It says right there. How, how, how did it happen? He chose us. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, he chose you and set you apart to be his people. Repeatedly throughout the book, repeatedly throughout the whole Bible, God presses this amazing truth on us. And I think sometimes we get lost in some of the, the theological debate and discussion and we miss the amazing part of this. God chose you. He chose Abram when Abram had no idea who he was. He chose him and made a promise to him, Abram, come here with me, I'm going to make a people out of you. And then after he chose Isaac, though he shouldn't have. Isaac wasn't the firstborn. And after him, Jacob, though he shouldn't have. Jacob wasn't the firstborn. He chose individual people to carry his promise down through this line to make a people. He is selecting, not waiting for volunteers, which is a good thing because there would not be any. He chooses people to pour out His love upon them. If He said, who's for me? There wouldn't be any. He chose and then drew us to Him. How did He do that? You know. You know how He did that. But as you think about this, again, realize it is not... It is not just... Dry doctrine or, or teaching or theology, as if those words are bad. It's not just that dry, this is your story. If you're a Christian, this is your story. It's what God has done to change your eternity for ever and ever and ever. It's amazing. He has called, He chose you and said, you, I'm going to pull you out here and make you mine. A people made up of individuals. And how am I going to do that? That's the story of the cross. Before the beginning of time, 
Before the foundation of the world, He chose you to be holy and blameless in His sight, says Ephesians. The only reason He could do that is because He knew He was going to send His Son to go to the cross to make you holy and blameless. To set you apart from all uncleanness. Think of, as I'm talking about this, think about what He has done and think about, that's me. If you're a Christian, this is you. Think about it. He acted to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He acted to make you blameless in His sight. He acted to wash you clean so that you stand as a pure, spotless bride before Him. He did that all on the cross. Under no obligation, an idea that none of us dreamed of and none of us volunteered for, He did that for you. He knew that He would have to give you grace to open your eyes for you to see it because it makes no sense to us. So He did that too. He knew that He would have to move you so that you could see what is actually beautiful and what is actually good in a gruesome death like that. And so he did it. Opened your eyes and moved you so that you would trust Christ and be made holy in his sight. And that, that is, let me pause there, that is a key. You have to trust Christ. I want to cover a little base here because as I'm talking to you in, in a generic sense, I am also aware that there are people here seated in the room that aren't included in the you. I say that He has done this for you, and what I mean is He has done this for you who have trusted Christ. It is not enough to be born into a family of people who trust Christ. It is not enough to sit next to people who trust Christ. You must trust Christ. You yourself personally must trust Him. He has done something marvelous on the cross that is applied to you when you trust Him and not a moment before. What I mean by trust Him? What I mean is turn away from, that word repent, turn away from trusting in yourself to make yourself good enough in God's eyes. To make yourself worthy of standing in His presence. To shape up your own life. Turn away from that and turn to Him saying something like in your heart, I have no hope in myself. If I'm going to stand in front of you, God, cleansed, clean, forgiven, I, I cannot do that. I have no hope. I only hope in Jesus' work on the cross to wash me clean. Please do that. Wash me with His blood. I trust Him alone. That's what I mean by trust Christ. And if you do that, He will receive you in. Wash you clean, forgive you, and make you His own. His own treasured possession. Think about this. Again, this is your story. This is how He sees you, Christian, as His treasured possession. 
that which is precious to Him, which He values and protects and cherishes and loves and keeps, that which holds His attention, that He always has His eye on and is in fact the apple of His eye, that upon which His affection rests, that for which He weeps when it hurts, that for which He is strongly inclined to protect, that for which He feels a wide, long, high and deep love. What is that? You. That's you. It's us, His people, made up of you. I know that you speak English and that you intellectually understood the words that I just said. But the problem is that this is really hard to get emotionally. I, I can run through that. I can, say, I can say it again. He holds your attention. The object of his affection. That over which he weeps when it hurts. That which he has a wide, long, high, deep love. You, you get that, but you don't get it. It's so hard to get, in fact, that in the book of Ephesians, Paul twice prays and asks God to intervene in the lives of Christians so that they would get it. Paul twice says, they won't get it unless you work, God. In the beginning half of chapter 1 of Ephesians, he, he opens up how it is that God has chosen and is acted to save in Christ. And then he goes to prayer and says, God, would you open the eyes of their hearts so that they would see. And there are three things he wants them to see. One of which is the glorious riches of the church. Your inheritance, God. And then in chapter 3, he says, God, would you give them strength? We need strength. To comprehend this. Would you give them strength to comprehend the breadth and the depth and the height and the length to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge? He's praying for you that God would give you strength to get this. So I have no hope of communicating it by myself. So I pray, God, give your people strength so that they would get this, that you are His treasure. He's insanely crazy about you, to use very human words. God's not insane about anything, but He is passionate. He loves you. I hope the, the stone faces are from people thinking. Because there should be a, a volume of joy that flows out of this. To be loved like this. Jesus said in John 15, As the Father has loved me, so I love you. How does the Father love the Son? Mildly on Tuesdays. No. Passionately. He's insanely fond of him. 
The Father loves the Son above everything because He is God and He is perfect. And so, as He loves me, so I have loved you. Jesus loves you, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's a simple little Sunday school thing. It's, you don't understand it. I don't either, but you don't understand it. His love for you, His treasure is vast. It is beyond comprehension in and of yourselves. So I pray right now even, God, help these brothers, and I mean the men there, help the, even the men, I'm talking even the men about being loved. Help these brothers to know how much you love them. Brothers, men, God, your Father looks upon you with tremendous affection. Are you a failure in life? Well, sure, of course. We all are. So what? He looks upon you in tremendous affection. Do you sin? Yes. Is He bent on changing that? Yes. Does He passionately love you? Yes. Through the sin. Sisters, the same is true for you. Wide and long and high and deep love for you. May He give you power to believe it and to see it. To see yourselves as clothed in Christ, perfect, pure, holy, set apart to Him, claimed by Him, the object of His affection. He sees your sin Yes, he hates sin. Yes, he's working to get rid of it. Yes, he never remembers it against you. He never remembers it against you. He remembers it. He never forgets. But he never remembers it against you. You stand in grace before him and he cannot love you any more than he does right now. Not because He doesn't have any more love to give, like He ran out or something, but because He loves you with the fullness of an eternal love already. Say that again. He cannot love you any more than He does right now because He loves you with the fullness of an eternal love already. He declares this, and He means for you to hear it. It's true about you. You are His sons. All of us. You are His sons. The ones that He has pulled aside to His right hand, to His right hand, upon whom He has set His name. He walks with you through life. You carry Him. He carries you. You're in relationship with Him. He sets you apart as His treasured possession. He tells you that He means for you to hear it and He means for you to experience it. What's going on in the tithing section? You bring this offering, not as a tax. In, in the other books, it's clear that, yes, this is used to sustain the temple and all the Levites and whatnot, but in this book right here, it's the potluck dinner, it's the God-centered party. 
And if you can't carry your stuff here, bring money and buy whatever it is you want. You hear the freedom in that? Whatever your appetite desires. If you want some lamb, if you want some beef, even wine and strong drink. God's fine with that. It's against drunkenness, of course, but he's fine with wine and strong drink. Buy it. Sit down at the table and drink with me. Eat with me. There, there might be other reasons to not drink. I get that. But it's right there in the verse, is it not? God throws a party for all of his people in which he meets all of their needs. And what he means for that to be is you to experience a covenant meal with him. As my sons. And I provide for all your needs. I'm dad. I pay. Don't dads always pay? I'm dad. I pay. You bring the stuff. It's given to me. And I set the table with it. And then I give it to those who didn't bring any stuff because they didn't have any stuff to bring. It's on me. Let's sit here rejoicing, says verse 26. I want to declare to you that you are my treasured possession, my beloved ones, and I want you to experience it too. Come, let's have a meal. Many of us, as I prayed earlier, our Thanksgiving meals, our Christmas meals, our holiday meals are not that kind of experience by a long shot. But they're supposed to be when the family sits down with its God, it rejoices. Worship service, experiencing that which He declares is true about you. Do you know it? And I mean that in two ways. Intellectually do you know it, and then experientially do you know it? Do you Relate to it in the mind, and do you know it? I, I struggle with this. I'm, I'm emotionally reserved and, and slow on this. Other people are too. Some of you, I'm sure, get this. But all of us need God's strength to fully get it. May He give it to you. May He declare to you, may you hear it. May He set it out before you and may you experience it. God has made us to be and has made you personally, if you're a Christian, to be His holy, treasured possession. Set apart, washed clean by Christ's cross, an object of His tremendous love. It doesn't end there. Because he wants us to live like that now. It's going to move us to the second point. But I'm going to get to that by relaying something that I, I saw happen recently. I saw a basketball coach get after one of the players on the team. Not, not on the opposing team, but on the coach's team. Kind of get after one of these players and say, essentially, I'm changing all the words here, but essentially, that has to stop. You can't do that anymore. I've told you this before. You can't do that anymore. If you keep doing this, you're going to ruin yourself and you're going to ruin our team. And if you keep doing that, I'm going to bench you so as not to let you ruin the team. You can't do that anymore. Which could sound really harsh, rather Bobby Knightish, Unless it exists in a clear context of we're together. We are a team. We're about a mission. We've got to accomplish something. I, um, coach says, I love you. You love me. We are on this team. And I care about this team, and I care about this mission, and I care about your best. This is going to happen. And I'm going to get this through to you. 
in, in that context, it's a statement actually of love to say, I'm, I'm not just going to sit over here on the bench and say, oh, whatever you guys want to do, that's fine. I don't really care. I'm getting paid. Or maybe not. I don't know. But I, I really don't care. I have, I have no concern for the outcome here, for your personal development, for the team's development and success. I'm just going through the motions. That would be unloving. To get after the person say, I expect something. We're going to get over this. We're going to work through this in the context of a relationship. That is love. We have something, and I'm going to hold you to it, and call you to it, and I'm going to coach you to it. We want coaches like that, don't we? That's how God's working with us here. He sets the context in this first observation. Here's who you are. I have made you something. I have pulled you over here, have made you my sons, my treasured possession, my people. And now, second observation, you're going to live like that. So here's, here's the second observation. The first one was that God has made us to be his holy treasured people. And the second one is day by day, he continues to make us to be his holy people. There's an obvious connection in the wording there. Day by day, he continues to make us his holy people. Where I get this is from the fact that 1, 2, and 21, as well as the feast I was just talking about, they are a stated reality. This is your identity. This is who you are. You are the sons. I have done this. And then the great majority of the chapter is commanding then, live set apart. I have set you apart, live set apart. And here's what that means. I've made you something, live it. That dynamic is what leads me to, day by day, he continues to make us his holy people. He says, don't do like they do. Don't eat that. Don't worship in the places where they do. Don't shave your heads for the dead like they do. Because you're distinct from them. You're mine. Be different. And in these verses, as is appropriate given this Old Testament, Old Covenant context where the covenant community is very physically defined, it's ethnically, it's geographically, it's politically defined, it's all physically structured. It's about genetic descent. It's marked out by the physical circumcision. It's all very physical in the Old Covenant. And it's all, as we've talked about repeatedly, all pointing towards a spiritual reality that's coming in the New Covenant. So in this old physical setting, it is entirely appropriate that the physical setting apart be very detailed and laid out in front of us. Here's what I mean for you to live distinct from them. Physically be separate. If you think about how all this stuff works, if, if, think of a, an example. If you don't, if, you, if it's forbidden for you to eat potato chips on purpose or accidentally or to touch them or to be around them, you're not coming to my house because I have potato chips in my house very regularly. So we're going to be kept separate by that law. 
And as long as you hold to that, you're going to be kept away from me. And you're going to be kept away from the stores that sell them. God's drawing a line to separate his people. I have made you holy, so live holy. Live set apart. Very physical. It's a story told in pictures. It's easy for kids to understand the Old Testament. It's right there. Not in big words, it's in a picture. Be separate. Because I'm going to make you be separate. Clean and unclean food. Physical picture. We've seen it all throughout Deuteronomy. But we've also seen all throughout Deuteronomy is that it's always actually pointing towards the heart. Moses talks about circumcision. Where does he go with it? Circumcision of the heart. It's in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, that's what he says. It's all pointing us towards the heart. We should expect this to pass away when something that changes the heart comes along. And it does. Jesus makes this explicit in Mark 7. You can jot it down. We're not going to turn there and look at it. But in Mark 7, Jesus explicitly declares all foods clean. He renders this stuff obsolete. So why in the world are we even bothering to talk about it? If we know, if we keep reading, we know that most of this chapter is obsolete, that it doesn't matter if, we, if you want to eat an owl for some reason or other, you can now. Why, why are we even bothering with all this? Because of God's continuing expectation that we do what Deuteronomy 14 is really about. Live Separate, live holy, distinct lives in the heart. Live like people who belong to God, who bear His mark upon us, which is no longer a physical circumcision, it's a circumcision of the heart, who bear upon Him His name, who have it bound to our foreheads and hands, that we walk around carrying Him, we're marked by Him. He still wants us to live like that. He still intends that we, as Second Corinthians 6 and on into 7 says, you can jot that down and look at it later too, Second Corinthians 6 and on into 7, quoting the Old Testament and applying it to the New Testament church. He says there, so he still intends us, come out from them and be separate. Touch no unclean thing. But obviously he doesn't mean food. Jesus already said that's, that's no more. Come out from them, be separate, touch no unclean thing. He still intends that we, in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, be cleansed from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the, of the Lord. He is still very intent that we be separate from the contamination of the world, that we live distinct holy, set apart from all defilement that rises up in our hearts even and rises up all out there amongst the nations. He calls us away from that. You have been made holy, be holy. You have been cleansed, be cleansed. Day by day by day. It is still His intent that His people be holy. Is that your intent? Is it? You know the right answer. Of course it is. Is it? 
Is it a thought on your mind? I have to be holy. I have to turn away from sin and touch no unclean thing. The heart. That's going to certainly affect your hands. It's after the heart. I have to be separate from contamination. To hold sin at bay and make war on it that it might not grip me. There's a brilliant uh, word picture in, in, some, in one of the writings of the, one of an old Puritan who talks about putting sin to death. And the word picture that he develops is not like using a, a gun and shooting somebody and putting them to death that way or, or a, a sword or something like that. The word picture that develops is that of strangulation. You have to grab sin and grip it. And moment by moment by moment by moment by moment it dies. And his point is that if you let go too early, it comes back to life eventually. If it is your intent to be holy, you will grab sin by the throat and choke it all of your life. And never say, well... He loves me. I'm his treasured possession, so it's fine. It's not his attitude. I love you. You're my treasured possession, and we're not going to get, we're not going to allow this. We're not going to deal with it. We're not we're not going to allow it to just take over. We're going to fight. I'm going to coach you through it. Is it your intent, Christian, to be holy? It is his intent that we be holy. Assuming then that it is, how do we get there? The structure of the text points it to us. What does he frame the commands to live separate with? The stated facts about how he views you, about what he's already done in you, and the experience of what it means to have fellowship with Him. He creates that framework of this is who we are. You and me, us. And now, we're going to grab sin and choke it. We're going to pursue holiness together. You cannot pursue holiness apart from the framework. You'll fail. It will, it will become onerous. You'll give up. But you can pursue it from a very firm foundation of, I am His beloved one. I am His treasure. He loves me. And He calls me to something and will walk with me in it. And notice carefully, I said day by day, He continues to make us His holy people. He's not just going to carry me out there and say, get to it. He's going to work in me to make me such and thus. And so, you think of Philippians, where it says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's you. For it is God who is at work in you. That's Him. To will and to work according to His good pleasure. He will make you day by day. Get up and fight with His strength. Which should tell us 
that if we're going to fight for holiness, we have to have our heads in the clouds. Regularly remembering who we are, what He has done for us, how He sees us. And surround yourself with other people who also have their heads in the clouds. Who also are very clear on who He is and what He has done and how He sees them and you and can tell you that. We have to fight holiness for holiness. That happens within a framework of identity. You're my holy one, set apart to me, my treasure. Walk in holiness. It's his call for you as a Christian and for us as a church. He has set us apart as a people for himself, and he intends that we live like it. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us grace to remind us Moment by moment, we we know these things, but we forget them, and we have a difficult time experiencing them. I would pray that you would give us grace to remind us of your deep, passionate, wide, long love. Do a work even right now in Christians in this room to speak that into their souls. Tell them in ways they can hear. Declare it in their minds and hearts, that you love them. And also, Lord, for those of us who need to hear the second part, that you still intend us to walk in holiness, convict. Do your work here. Whatever is particularly needed in different people in this room, do that, Father, to shape your community to be your treasured possession, holy to you. May Christ be honored then in our midst, for he is the one who makes us holy. He is the one who empowers us to be holy. And it is in his name that we pray and thanks. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.